Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. Where can I go then from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. If I make the grave my bed, you are there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand hold me fast. Psalm 139 verses 6 to 9. This is one of my favorite psalms and reveals in a few lines the very essence of God. Here's the psalmist speaking eloquently for us, putting forth every possibility he can come up with in his quest to hide from God, to be willful and do what he wants to do. He stumbles on with the thought of hiding in the darkness after the light has departed, and then with an, oh, shucks, he admits, darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Verses 10 to 11 foiled again. My oldest son soaked up the full impact of the darkness image, even in the completeness of a blackout backstage which he has experienced many times. He was as visible to God as if it was a sunshiny day. For the sinner, this is bad news. For the believer, it is steadying. Think about how well you know your children, their strengths, their weaknesses, their likes and dislikes, their moods, their foibles, their habits, and their open hearts. Face it, you know them better than anyone else, even themselves. Then remember how much you love them, especially when they're asleep. When I'd had a particularly unmelodious day, I used to go into each of my children's rooms deep in the night and stand and look at them, gently slumbering, and allow the peace of my unconditional love, unfathomable at times, embrace me warmly, and I'd experience a deep and powerful love that sustained me through their waking hours. God knows and loves us so much better than we know and love our own, and we know and love our own so well. I cannot hide. I can block God out, but he won't block me out ever. Remember that. Hello, welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. My name is Vivian McNenny, and I'm here to dispel any preconceived ideas you may have about what educating your children at home looks like. It can be straightforward school or no school at all. It can involve world travel or a comfy seat on the couch. It can be in pursuit of passions or simply hanging out in a tree. Homeschooling can be embarked on for a number of reasons, too. A physically challenged child or parent, the threat of bullies and overwhelming peer pressure, a particularly brilliant child who's bored in kindergarten, a conflict in religious values, a desire for the family closeness missing in your upbringing. For me, it's a lifestyle that suits the maverick lurking within. 
I wanted to be the one who saw the light bulbs go on. I wanted to be there at turning points in my children's lives. I didn't want to hand them over to folk who are not their mother, and I wanted to make my own decisions about how to raise my children. During my show, I have spoken to a wide range of homeschooling mothers, fathers, and graduates who have found educational opportunities everywhere and thrived. I've moved in and out of my comfort zones. God and children will do that. I've gained insights and delights, and I'm happy to share them with you. With or without my children underfoot, my life is often ordinary, always busy, and sometimes a roller coaster. But for me, it starts and ends with God. The beauty of a tropical climate, the sight of butterflies in the trees, young calves sparring, a mockingbird singing, the croaking of frogs, a full moon, or a serious hug. If you pop over, I'll offer you a cup of organic coffee and a slice of wildflower honey cake to tickle your taste buds. And thank you for staying. I'm broadcasting from Turkey Creek in Florida, and after the first break, I'll be talking to my oldest son Ian and my youngest daughter Malia about their careers and how life has changed for them over the past year. We spoke a few weeks ago about their life together as roommates. Now we can listen to the rest of the conversation about their lives apart. I'm all set, so grab whatever it is you're drinking and let me engage you with the latest and greatest from the household of the McNinnies, where we are nearing the end of our house-sitting assignment. I spotted a pirate cow, and we're making the most of the peace and quiet by finishing up our writing projects and cooking some really quite good meals. Are you ready? I mentioned honey cake in my opening, but it wasn't just any old honey cake, but the local honey that we've been buying, eating, and thoroughly enjoying on our digestive biscuits at lunchtime. Digestive biscuits are English and better than graham crackers. I really can't describe them any further than that. They're good dunked in hot tea or coffee, and even better, or so I think now, with honey spread on them. Only I'm not an absolute nut about runny honey, preferring the thick stand on its own variety I find on the shelves in Sainsbury's in London. When we went to buy local honey from the local beekeeper. I found a jar of what I thought to be this thick honey, but it wasn't. It was coconut jam or some such confection I didn't want. I asked the beekeeper, and she said, "Oh, you mean whipped honey? We don't whip the honey. It takes too long and is just extra work. It's easier to sell it as it comes. Runny. Hmm. Whipped honey. So she gave me an idea. Guess what we did with our first batch of sea grape honey? I poured it into my KitchenAid bowl and attached the whisk and beat it for a few minutes. Then I poured the air-filled concoction into the original bottle and had just a little left over, enough for a biscuit or three or four. I refrigerated it, and over the days it got thicker and thicker until the end, as the jar was emptying out, I had to put it in the cupboard so that we could spoon the last delicious bites. I was. Hooked. The next bottle of honey we bought was orange blossom. I didn't chill this one after I'd whipped it, so it didn't hold its whippedness so well. But the wild flower honey, well, it was thick, going into the bowl for its whipping. When I finished, it was even thicker and cloudier, and the best yet. 
we have one more kind of honey to try, the palmetto. And from having a sample of it in the shop, it tastes a little like molasses. So I know I have a treat on my biscuit in store. In a cake, pure heaven. And it's not necessary to whip the honey because it gets cooked in and the flavor is heavenly. And it's so easy to whip. And if, you li- if you're like me and enjoy a thick, opaque honey just throw it in a bowl and whisk it up it only takes a minute or two and the bowl is finger licking good one of the trees in our garden when we sit and have our lunch attracts butterflies we see them flying all around the branches they're yellow and they've got black stripes and did you know what a group of butterflies are called there are four terms that describe them there's a flight of butterflies a rabble of butterflies and a swarm of butterflies which sounds like bees but my all-time favorite is a kaleidoscope of butterflies isn't that lovely so we eat our lunch beside the tree watching a kaleidoscope of butterflies flying around and there goes my text swoosh from Dorts about her dance camp. She's almost at the end of that now and will soon begin her regular autumn classes as head of... Well, I don't need to be telling you what she's going to be doing. I'll let her do that herself after the break when I'll be sharing a conversation we had recorded a few weeks ago. Malia McNenny completed her homeschooling career with me and received an Associate of Arts degree from the local community college before spending a year in London at a performing arts school. She returned to Dallas last year fresh off her cruise and has gradually moved towards the job she wants, namely teaching dance. Stay tuned to hear her talk about how things have changed for her over the last 12 months. But first, a few messages. So go get yourself a drink and come back. How do you handle toddlers, teens and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler. And we'll be right back after these. Mark Lipinski is coming to Toginet. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. A live two-hour show Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Creative Mojo. It's fun, entertaining, informative, inspirational, and illuminating. Lipinski has worked on such shows as Oprah, The View, The Joan Rivers Show, and Ricky Lake. He's busy, but he's got the drive to share with Creative Mojo, dedicated to the modern crafter and crafting lifestyle. Dive into the info and enjoy everything from celebs to entertainment news to recipes, quilting and needlework, knitting, painting, woodworking, Christmas crafts, and so much more. This show boldly encourages you to discover and harness your own creative spirit by living creatively every day. For more on Mark and the show, check out marklepinski.com. Don't miss the fun. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. This time last year, uh, we were living in London. 
And I was working Starbucks, and I continued to audition for dance jobs and everything, and nothing ever came my way. But it did never get me down because I was really getting into my Starbucks job, and they sent me to a training in another town in London, and I enjoyed that so much. I came home that night and said, I think I want to become a coffee master, and I want to do Starbucks for the rest of my life. <laughs> so that was just my plan, but I kept going to, to auditions and, and doing my dance thing, and then suddenly one day, I was able. I was offered a, a dance job on a cruise line. Okay, hang so on. Let, ahead me, ahead. let me interrupt you. You were doing auditions and doing your thing. Now people know that you're in London here, but they have no idea what the audition scene looks like there. So say, tell a little bit about that. Well, it was very easy to audition in London because it was only about a 20-minute train ride into London. Uh-huh. And then you could just walk in and, and say, I'm here to audition for, for this cruise line or for this oh, yeah. show. And okay. there would probably be about three or 400 girls there. Yeah. So it was like a cattle call every single time. Yeah. So where did you find out, though, about them? I would get emails about audition updates or I had a really good friend named Sean and she would always send me her things. And so she was basically my agent, but I didn't have to pay her. Yeah. And, and there's a, there was a studio in London that you used to go to. There's a studio called Pineapple and they would always have, they would always have audition notices hanging on the boards or mm-hmm. you would just hear someone talking about an audition mm-hmm. if you would go and take class there and mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. it doubled as rehearsal studios for some big West End shows like Mamma Mia and and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I saw an ad online mm-hmm. that was asking for a cruise line dancer. Mm-hmm. So I just went ahead and emailed my showreel mm-hmm. of, you know, my best little snippets of dance. And I just emailed it to the lady and she emailed me that day. I had been to an audition in the morning and finally decided to give up because I just didn't get it. I got cut. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a good day. But I got the email later that day saying we'd like to, you know, I'm going to send this off to the head of the company and see if he would like to hire you. But I think it's a really good chance. Mm-hmm. And then that evening she called and and offered me a cruise line job. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that was that was a mad dash to get all that together because you had like two weeks, I think, or three weeks at the most. Yes. Well, Malia, at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about this time last year where you were and that you were dancing and auditioning and you finally got yourself a job on a cruise line. And there is a show that we talk about that cruise line um, experience, so we don't have to talk about that again. At the end of the cruise, you'd been out for about three months or for three months. You came back to Dallas and that's where you you're living conditions changed but also something else started to happen you came off from performing I don't know whether or not performing was um, what you expected it to be on board the ship but in hindsight tell us a little bit about what those three months were like now that you've been away from that for about six or seven months well on the cruise line I really enjoyed that I was getting paid to do what I love to do and I felt very lucky and blessed However, um, I maybe it was the people I was surrounded by, but they brought me down and they were they were just kind of there to make money. And so they didn't have dance as their passion anymore. It wasn't mm-hmm. something they enjoyed. So it was like a job. And so it would be, oh, I have to go to work again tonight. You know, oh, I have to perform on stage again. And it just brought me down. And I was like, well, if this is how it's going to be getting paid to do my what I love, then I don't want to do it. 
you know, I don't want to do it. I would like to do it as a hobby and, and have another job on the side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I was at when I moved back. Um, the plan was still to move. Well, sorry, when I moved back to Texas after my cruise line, the plan was still to move to London at some point, And it still is. Um, however, the reality of money set in and I was paying for an apartment and paying all my bills and I didn't really have enough money to save um, in order to move myself to London on my own. So I um, decided I was going to be a nanny and I became a nanny for a couple of months and then that really wasn't what I wanted. So what did that entail? Because um, they were older girls. So what actually were you doing? Um, I was basically their chauffeur. I just drove them around everywhere. I would take them to school in the morning, pick them up, take them to tennis and dance and then take them home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was irritating because I was sitting in a car all day and it, it, the times didn't allow me to take any dance classes or Mm -hmm. do work on the Dallas TV show, you know? So it was just very um, restricting for the things that I actually wanted to do. Yeah. So like a lot of people say, well, if you work 40 hours a week, then how am I going to fit in my, my dance classes and that? And you weren't actually working that many hours a week, but the hours that you were working did cut right into those times when you could go and take your dance classes. So it was kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you couldn't do something because you knew at three o'clock you had to leave, go pick the, ki- pick the kids up from school and yes. all of that. So, yeah. Right. Understand that. So you weren't able to take class, but you did find some kind of exercise to do. Thank goodness, because I think you were chomping at the bit a little bit too, weren't you? I started to run, and then I found out close to the end of my lease um, that there was a jazzercise place next to me. So I would um, I would go to jazzercise. I got a membership, and I started going to jazzercise probably about three times a week, and yeah. it would be at noon. Uh-huh. So it was perfect time for me. But it was with all the old ladies. Um, so I stopped nannying. Well, I was currently nannying, but I decided I wanted to take another direction. So I spoke to one of my friends that I danced with at Collin College back um, about five years ago because I knew she was a dance teacher. And she was like, we would love to have you as a teacher because she knows I'm a dancer and I, tra- I was trained very, very well. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up having an interview with her bosses, the owners of this dance studio. Had an interview and that same day was basically offered the job and started to train with them twice a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to fit it in in between my other job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I slowly made the transition from nannying into teaching dance. Mm-hmm. And then now that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm no longer nannying and I am jumped, I've jumped straight into teaching dance camps during the summer and subbing some dance classes and becoming a full-on teacher. Okay, so how, how is that compared to being taught now you're teaching? Yes, well, it's very um, challenging. I love to be in charge, <laughs> so that's exciting. I'm glad I'm in charge of these girls and able to teach them the things that I was taught and, mm-hmm. and share my talents and things, but it's just it's very challenging to find music, mm-hmm. um, and especially music that's appropriate, age-appropriate, and, and things like that. Um, it's hard to be able to lay out lesson plans because, well, me as a new teacher, I haven't had any of these girls before, so I don't know what they are capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll change when I when I get the swing of things and I start to learn people and how they dance and how they move. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a little bit challenging. Um, these camps this summer are ranging from age three to six. 
So this week I've actually got two three-year-olds and the rest are four, five, and six-year-olds. So it's just been very challenging to try and get everyone to focus and pay attention and and teach to each person's level because I don't want to make it too difficult, but I don't want to make it too easy. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just a lot more than I ever thought that my teachers would have to go through to teach me a class. So do you remember taking class at that very young age? I mean, honestly, I don't. I remember maybe uh, maybe from pictures, I guess, Mm -hmm. but not really. I always just remember being awesome on company. (laughs) And I was already on point and everything. I I mean, I don't remember being that young and learning all this butterfly and learning all the the first moves that you learn when you're young. Well, I remember the first class you went to, though, was at that recreation center. Yes. Yes. And you went in. And I don't think she did that butterfly stuff and that. I think she just went straight in and you were at the bar and you... Too. Yeah. Anyway, so now you're teaching. And so you're teaching these this this camp that's a three to six year old camp. Are there any older or are they all that age? Well, these are just the camps that I'm teaching. There are older camps that start at seven, mm-hmm. seven to 15, you know, so they would have a big variety of age as well. Wow. Um, but they, because I'm such a new teacher, they decided to put me on the pre-dance camps. Yeah. So I've got the youngins. So last week I had four girls and they were all the same age. They were all five, I think. Yeah. So that was pretty easy. But this week it's more challenging. And I don't know. Uh, next week we don't have one, but. For the rest of the summer, I've got a couple more, so yeah, yeah, we'll okay. see. We're good. Yeah. So your future there, what does it look like? What What are you going to be doing if uh, once you've done the camps and class actually starts back in August? What's right. it looking like? Well, I met with my boss and Miss Jamie, who's the head of ballet currently in, in Allen at the Allen Dance Studio, um, and they have offered me to become the head of ballet. Mm-hmm in Allen because Jamie is moving over to McKinney. Mm-hmm. So it looks like I'm going to be teaching all ballet classes at Allen. So so none of the girls have different ballet teachers. They all know that to have ballet, they have Miss Malia. Okay. And what is that age range? Well, that would be everyone. So I could start, you know, I could do pre-classes, which is three to four, and all the way up to the girls in company that are 16 and 17. Okay. And, you know, but obviously each class has a certain age group. But Yeah. yeah. So, and, and it would be by ability, right, rather than age. Correct. Yes. So I had a class that I subbed yesterday, or two days ago anyway, and um, there were girls that were eight, and there were also girls that were 14. Mm-hmm. But, but they were in the same level because they had, you know, taken ballet one and now they were in ballet two. It didn't matter what age they yeah. were. They just have to, you have to do it at that, at you know, in that direction. Yeah. When you're teaching the small, small ones, will it be a morning class or is are these all just evening classes? There are some morning classes um, that would be pre, pre-classes, so the tiny ones. And then the evening classes are going to be the older girls, the company girls. And then all day Saturday or what do they do? And then all day Saturday starting at 9, maybe 9 to 2 or 9 to 3. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do they do any performances? They are a big competition studio. Oh, really? Um, and I don't have to teach competition things mm-hmm. quite yet, mm-hmm. um, but they do. They perform a lot throughout the year because they're at competitions or, you know, they've got a lot of shows. They just had recital and they're working on building a nutcracker for the studios. Okay. 
So that's another reason why they are wanting me to become head of ballet. Yeah. So a competition studio means that the teachers there do teach competition. You're just not teaching competition levels. I would teach competition levels. It's just up to me if I decide I want to teach a girl a competition solo. Or I decided I would like to do a competition duo. And so I would do a duet with two girls. Well, are you excited about, about this new change? Are you enjoying it so far? So far, I'm very much enjoying it. It's um, It's been a big learning experience, and I've only done it for two weeks. So I can't imagine what I'll know by the end of summer or next, this time next year what I'll be telling you oh, in our interview. All right. Well, thank you very much, Malia, for talking to me. It's been um, a delight, as always, to hear your very enthusiastic, chirpy voice. And you've got some classes that you're picking up this evening, I hear. I am. I'm teaching another class tonight. I'm being a substitute teacher. Yeah. What age are they? Um, it's an intermediate class, which means they can be any age as long as they are intermediate level. Well, listen, you have a great weekend. Okay. And thanks so much for talking to me. Bye. Thank you. It's time for me to go on another break. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dort's update on her career. When I come back, I'll be bringing you my oldest son, Ian McNinney, who homeschooled with me from second grade onwards, wanting me to do college with him, but ending up going to the College of Santa Fe for two years on his own to complete his BA in film production. Ian has worked as a freelance assistant editor at Real FX, a post-production house. He's been an editor at Talk Rock and the Daily's assistant at Dallas that aired on TNT. He is executive producer for his own company, McCook Media. He specializes in story and narrative film video editing, live event editing, and story and narrative screenwriting. I've been blessed to have him join me on my show a few times over the years. And today, after these few messages, you'll hear a recorded conversation we had about his career and the making of a pilot for a TV series he hopes to sell in L.A. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. 
Well, I guess the, the most significant thing that's happened in my life this past year was that I made a TV pilot. I made a, a first episode of a TV series that my best friend Shelby and I uh, decided the world needed to see. So we spent like nine months mm-hmm. uh, writing and developing and making sure that everything was the best that we could possibly make it. And then uh, in October, we cast the show, which mm-hmm. was a lot of fun because we got to see all of our our words and our, our hard work brought to life by these people who didn't know us from Adam. So they didn't, mm-hmm. you know, they, they didn't have any obligations to tell us our stuff was great. They just, they came in and read with enthusiasm and we could tell that they really enjoyed it all. So that was kind of bizarre. Uh, So can I I interrupt you just for a minute? Let's go back just a little bit here. Now, you say that you and Shelby wrote and developed this series, and the two of you are both very artistic. You're not a couple of rookies that have a video camera and you decided, ah, I'm going to go out there and, and, you know, make a a pilot for a series. Not anymore. No. Okay. So you've you've moved on. We definitely used to be. You definitely used to. Well, you've done, you've got a few belt, a few films under your belt haven't you we do we do now yes so comparatively i mean what were the difference i mean you've slowly evolved into this more sophisticated filmmaker what 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 differences did you see from when you were doing it as a child or as a you know an older teenager to this time around what were the differences um well the differences between when i used to do these kinds of things growing up and now is the um, the amount of preparation mm-hmm. that we put into it. Um, we knew that we couldn't just do this like Jedi Dispute or the James Bond movie and kind of have a rough idea of what we wanted to see and then just film it in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that we had to have a script that was worthy of, of sending to people and, and having other actors who that's what they want to do with their lives is act, mm-hmm. um, read the material and, and fall in love with it. So we knew that there was a lot of preparation that had to go in first and foremost, which mm-hmm. is why it took nine months. Mm-hmm. But also my general knowledge of the working nature of a, a professional set, having been on Dallas for three years, almost just starting my third season at the time, mm-hmm. um, I knew how a set was supposed to run, uh, you know, with a multi-million dollar budget like Dallas has, mm-hmm. you know, per episode, mm-hmm. uh, and then translated into, you know, our little $8,000 production, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I was able to to run it as professionally as uh, as it was possible to do. And I think we did a great job, actually. And so you wrote the show together. How did that work? I mean, did you both sit down at the same computer and just throw ideas out? Or did you write some and he wrote some, then you got together? I mean, yes, we sat down in front of essentially both of our laptops mm-hmm. and would read through the notes that we'd taken the previous you know, time we worked and, and then elaborate on it. It would either, it would end up being, you know, one of us would type or the other one would type and we'd typically be working on the same document. We Mm -hmm. would share them back and forth at the end of each day so that we both had the same copies. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, we would, we would essentially both work on it together in the same room, just, just going back and forth and being open-minded about each other's ideas and the possibility of anything could happen to these characters. Yeah. 
yeah. And did they, did the characters kind of take over somewhat? Um, in what way? What do you well, mean? Well, sometimes, you know, you, you, I interview some people who write and they say, well, I sat down and this is the way this, I thought the story was going to go. And by the time I got up, I realized, wow, <laughs> once I created that character and let him go, it just, it, he just developed a mind of his own. So, yeah, the characters definitely took a, the characters definitely took over um, in thank, thanks in part to the fact that they're based on some real people that Shelby and I worked with. So we, we knew them very well. We were able to develop them into characters that fit within the parameters of the world we wanted to create. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was actually a lot of the development was, was developing the characters and their relationships to each other so that when we got to writing the story – it became pretty apparent as you know events went on how each character would react and right. it kind of did you know uh, add it kind of did steer the show yeah in that way yeah. um, so because, did you get to a point where you read over your stuff sometimes when you got together and went oh my gosh that's total rubbish and throw it all away well yeah i mean there's there's times where we would come up with an idea that we thought was great and then the next time we we'd had more time to think about it and maybe we'd come up with something better or something just doesn't work anymore we thought it did on the first day um we actually wrote um a whole pilot uh it was actually a two-part pilot episode um in the first we did that by about April or May, mm-hmm. uh, so four months in, and then um, the realization hit us that everything that we written, we everything that we had written, we would have to actually make happen. So we'd written a a scene of two hundred and fifty wedding guests and this just giant chaos, mm-hmm. and we realized that's something that we're going to have to actually put together and do. So maybe we should write and structure a story around a much smaller budget, much less people. That way it's it's much more manageable of a okay. of a story. So we definitely have, have scrapped, you know, things here and there for the betterment of, of the series. Yeah. So um you were learning as you were going then. We we were. We yeah. we learned a lot as we went on, and, and I think it just kind of added to the professionalism of the final product. All right, so we've got the script. You've got the written script, and you've sent it out to. Uh, did you did you choose? Did you have an open call, or did you have ideas of who you wanted? No, we had a pretty open call. Mm-hmm. Um, we received about 150 submissions mm-hmm. uh, for all the different roles, um, and that was just based on a casting call that we sent out uh, to a few different resources, but just listing out the characters and uh, a basic idea of the plot and what the, the requirements would be in terms of, of commitment from them and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was um, it was pretty open, and, and we narrowed it down to about 35, 40 people mm-hmm. for our 11 roles. And they came in to audition for us mm-hmm. at, uh, at Tuzer, Tuzer Dance Center. All right. And how, how difficult was it to, to cast? Did you and Shelby uh, agree or were there some people that you wanted or someone that he wanted that you didn't want? 
As far as casting, um, yes, at first, at the auditions, the live auditions, there were definitely some differences in, in who Shelby preferred to who I preferred. Mm-hmm. But the benefit of that, of the whole audition process, was that we filmed it. Yeah. Uh, Shelby set up his camera, and we re-recorded yeah. every single audition. So um, a few days later, we got back together and, and watched all the videos again. And after that, we actually came to most of the same uh, – uh, the same decisions um, mm-hmm. about the cast, so it was it was good to have that that uh, backup, so that we could we could then each either justify our decision or see uh, see something different in mm-hmm. in the performances yeah. the second time yeah. around. That's right. So now you've got it cast and you're into the filming. When did you film? Could you film during the day, or did you have to film at another time? No, we we knew early on that we would probably need to work around the schedule of the building we were shooting at the atrium um which would require nighttime uh nighttime shooting because they do a lot of events during the day especially during the week um so we wrote the script specifically with it set at night uh like an overnight room turn from one event to another and uh and so that it made it easier to to schedule, but um, it was going to be twelve hour days, and we were going to try and do it six days in a row and just get it all all done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, six days of overnights is not easy for anybody. No. And did you sleep during the day, or were you were you working? No, I took a week off work uh, on Dallas uh, specifically to, to to shoot this TV show. So mm-hmm. I would get home at about. We would shoot from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and then after, you know, cleaning everything up and making sure things were put away and whatnot, uh, I would get home about 9 or 10 o'clock every every morning and sleep till about 4 or 4.30 and then get up and, and go back over there. Yeah. Um, it was a lot more work for Shelby and me than it was for anybody else because we were – for once, we weren't just the actors in it. We were, you know, the production team, so we it was our responsibility to – to make sure that the building was left in a in a presentable condition yeah. for sure. Yeah, the way that you found it. All right, so you've got it filmed. Now, obviously, you've not been looking at any of the film because you've gone home, gone to bed, woken up, gone back to do um, some another night of shooting. Right. So when did you when did you eventually sit down and look at what you've got? Well, you must have looked at some of it to make sure you didn't have to redo some. Well, a little bit. We would check them throughout the night as we as we would offload everything. Um, so we knew that at least it was there. But in terms of us actually sitting and watching the footage, we couldn't really do that until we were finished shooting. No. Uh, and I had taken all the footage back up to Dallas um, to the set and uh, done all the the syncing of the audio and and run it through the daily system essentially. Yeah. So it was uh, – we finished shooting on a Friday Friday night, so I guess Saturday morning, and then I went home and slept. And then Saturday evening, I went and started doing all the syncing and, and started to watch some of the footage, and uh, we did that Saturday night and Sunday. Mm-hmm. And then came the editing. How long did that yes. take, and how did you do that? I mean, we, did you do that together, separately? How did that work? Um, editing took about four months, but that's because we, uh, I mean, we all, we each had work and jobs to do and, and could only dedicate part of our time to, to the editing. Um, 
and also we were relying on other people for certain things. We had a, somebody else doing the audio mixing for us. Somebody was doing uh, a couple of visual effects. Mm-hmm. And then we had somebody else also doing all of the original music for it. So we had to work around their schedules as well. Mm-hmm. As far as the editing goes, Shelby and I would typically do it together. Um, we would again get together uh, a few times a week and just run through the the show scene by scene Shelby would kind of explain kind of the vision that he he'd seen once he was shooting it and everything and I would do my best to kind of piece it together and then we'd sit and massage each each scene together there were a few scenes we did individually and then brought them to the table but we found it it better to to do most of the work you know together in the same room and were you happy with your final product? Did you have to go back in and get anything? You know, redo something? Or? Well, yes, I was very happy with the final product. Um, we only had a couple of shots that we knew right at the. We knew when we finished shooting, there were a few shots that we had had to let go but they were easy shots like there's a scene where one of the shots is somebody holding a piece of paper and that was the shot that we needed but it could be anybody's hand and we could get the piece of paper another time so we we had just a couple of those shots that we had to go back and get Um, and then after each part of the process in post all of the music and sound was all added uh, and put together Uh, then we did one more edit pass of the whole show and just tightened every Everything up so that there were no uh, moments that the audience might just lose interest, even for a few seconds. Yeah, yeah. So, so you were you were saying that there were certain things where you could get those shots later, like you used, for example, that piece of paper with the any hand. Mm-hmm. As you were preparing to do that shooting, did you actually have to write out every single shot that you wanted? Is that how that worked? Are you you're asking about every single shot that we wanted the second time around when we had to go pick up those no, shots? No, no. Oh, initially. Yeah. Yes, initially we did have to write together uh, a list of all of the shots mm-hmm. that Shelby wanted. Shelby, being the director, he he had the the creative vision uh, when it came to the finished uh, shooting the finished script, and then uh, myself as the producer was in charge of just of putting it all together, making yeah. it happen. So yeah. we listed out um, all of the shots, um, at least how many setups we knew we needed for each scene. Um, and it was typically between three and five, and it ended up being probably five or six per per scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we had a pretty good idea of what we were looking at going into it, and that also allowed me to be able to schedule everything pretty accurately I think there was only there were only two scenes in the entire shoot that we had to rearrange just because our first day or two um, we were still getting used to everything and, and we were a little bit slower than we would have liked but we were able to pick up those scenes on the third day and, and we were back on schedule for yeah. the last two days of the shoot Yeah. so you've got your pilot filmed ready for your series now, what did you do? Um, well, now I uh, am in charge of partnering with a network to get it to two series. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing that, I moved out to California to 
put myself right in the in the heart of the industry and and allow myself the opportunity to uh is it rub shoulders or rub elbows with yeah. the yeah. the the best of the best that are here but you went out there in december with something and had a little bit of a jaunt did shelby go with you on that one he did. Yes. He did. Um, yeah, we went out in December to kind of just get a, an idea for what we needed to do because uh, neither one of us have ever pitched a series to anybody or, or anything. So we we wanted to go and, and see who was around, see what kind of advice we could get from some of the people that I knew on Dallas that live here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we did. We, we went to a few places just uh, wondering if we would be able to – do a cold call and just walk in and meet with somebody, um, which we found very quickly would nobody would do. We need to have representation. Yeah. So that, that gave us the opportunity to, to then know what we're looking for whenever the time came to, to actually, you know, push forward with the, uh, with the show after it was completed. Mm-hmm. And that's all part of what I'm doing here in California now. All right. Well, good luck on your, on your pilot and that was a great story a great well one thing that happened to you this year and how 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 did uh, yours and Shelby's friendship change how did your relationship change um well i think we mutually gained a lot of respect for each other i think that Shelby has some some really great overarching views of certain things and uh, a good sense of direction for the way certain things should go. (laughs) And he and I were able to communicate with each other effectively enough to where uh, he got to see my my talents as uh, an organizer and a facilitator Mm -hmm. and actually make some of this stuff happen the way that he saw it happen. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, it helped with that a lot. And we it also gave us the opportunity to just talk openly with each other. I mean, if if I didn't like something or the direction something was going in the script, um, I couldn't be afraid to mention it to Shelby or else it would either never change or there'd just be this unspoken thing and would cause tension for no yeah, reason. That's right. Uh, and the same thing with him. I mean, he had to learn how to how to tell me something in a way that I could understand it and not think he was just being difficult or, or anything like that. And, and same with me. I mean... It was all just a, a a big lesson in communication, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Ian. Uh, we're going on a break, and we'll be back in just a moment. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. You 
Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. You've been listening to my daughter, Malia McNenny, and my son, Ian McNenny, talk about where the last year took them on their careers. Malia graduated from homeschool and earned an Associate of Arts degree from Colin College before spending a year in London at a performing arts school. She's also a star barista and has worked in coffee shops in London and Dallas, and you can find her on Facebook. Ian graduated from homeschool and has a Bachelor of Arts degree in film production and is a film editor, screenwriter and executive producer of his own company, Mike Cook Media. You can find him on LinkedIn. They both spent a lot of their young lives working in community theatre, singing, dancing and acting in plays and musicals, and I'm sure you'll agree that they're wonderful people who thoroughly benefited from the homeschooling experience and from their theatre experience with the community. My Texan spends as many hours as I do at the computer. We're a very reclusive couple here in um, Turkey Creek, Florida. My blue-eyed cowboy is online hustling, coming up with ideas for projects. But he, too, is writing a memoir a little bit differently to mine, though, in subject matter, of course, and in method. He's going to propose the idea for his memoir and submit just one chapter, not like me, who's pushing herself to write the whole thing before I seek a buyer. I suppose we're writing towards different goals. Mine is cathartic and historically relevant for my children's children. His is that, too. We get together for lunch at about 12.30 or 1-ish, and then again at dinner at about 9 o'clock in the evening. Then we watch something on Netflix for about 45 minutes. I thoroughly enjoy our breaks together. We also walk the dogs in the early evening for about 30 minutes, and we go on a bike ride together sometimes, especially when it's not storming, which is dangerous here, apparently. The locals say if you hear thunder, stay inside, because the chance of being struck by lightning is quite high. In fact, it's become so commonplace, it's no longer newsworthy. Imagine. Ho-hum, someone else was struck by lightning today, not anything to talk about on the news. Just stay inside when it storms. I think I will heed that warning. This week, while we were out, it did start to rain, and one of our neighbours, there are only two left on our street, insisted that we come inside away from danger and have a glass of wine. So we did. I got bitten to death by mosquitoes because we were inside on the outside patio. We completely missed our dinner and our evening date with Netflix, and I did find riding my bike home after a glass of wine quite an unsettling experience. My Perry Poppins daughter giggled when I told her. It was fun to get social for a few hours. Now our neighbour down the road and her husband have also gone seeking cooler climbs. So it's just us chickens and the dogs on our street at the moment. 
And a couple of weeks ago, I met a pirate cow named her and named her Sparrow after Johnny Depp's character Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean. She was in an isolated paddock near the path where I walk. There's a rough set of barns and stalls where she lived for the moment under plenty of shade and on her own. She had a large patch over her right eye, which suited her very well for a pirate. And sometimes when I approached from that side, she ignored me because it was her blind side. I would walk on a little and make a noise so that she would turn her good eye to me and stare while chewing the cud. I'd never seen a cow with an eye patch on before, so out came my iPhone and snap, snap, I took some pictures. She looked very elegant, and I wondered what her ailment was. There was no asking her, of course. So I went online and discovered it to be pink eye, which, as in humans, is very contagious among livestock and aggravated by lots of rain, humidity and prolific swarms of flies around the eyes, which is what we have here. As a preventative precaution, some farmers will use full cow and calf eye coverings to keep their peepers in the shade and protect them from head flies, but I haven't seen herds of cows with beauty masks on yet, although there was a picture online. (laughs) The patch, by the way, is called a pirate patch and is preferable to stalling the infected cows as they prefer to be outside roaming in the meadow and chewing the cud, not cooped up in a barn. Plus, the additional work of feeding and cleaning is just too much for the already busy farmer. So now we know, thanks to Mother Earth News and its article on homesteading and livestock, and guess what? Anecdotal evidence showed that colloidal silver worked better and faster than other sprays for the infected eyes. We're homeschoolers. We find all sorts of interesting things to look up and draw or write essays about, don't we? Back to sitting at our computers and working with words. I'm on the polishing stage of my book and there's always something new to change, some other way to say things. I wonder if I'll ever get finished. I've had a hard time with this memoir, a gathering of stories I'd written about all kinds of things that went on during the four years when my parents were in crisis. The final part was the year before my mother died. I had to do a lot of rearranging and cutting and trimming because I hadn't yet written anything that I was taking to my writing critique group, so I didn't have any carefully worked essays ready. Writers say you have to write every day, whether you like what you write or not, and so I did for many weeks before I finally arrived at the point where I could take on the more creative task of crafting what I wanted to say to share the potpourri of feelings and memories I have of my parents' final years. I'm on the home run now, and looking back, it wasn't always a rewarding experience, although I do love the process of writing. I developed a routine where I worked for four hours at a stretch, looking forward to coffee and lunch for the first four, done from about 8.30 in the morning till 12.30, and then my dinner for the last four-hour stretch from about two in the afternoon to six in the evening. And at times I would find myself dozing, not a good sign for potential readers. I laughed when I told my filmmaker son that my writing put me to sleep sometimes. But slowly and surely the sentences have been formed and they've come together. The stories are now being isolated and they've been retold on my computer screen. 
At first I asked myself, how am I going to use words I don't know exist? How can I find new words to embellish my manuscript with because I'm not supposed to use the same words over and over again? Well, providence prevailed and words I didn't know I knew began popping into my mind and I'd look them up in my dictionary and thesaurus online. My brain is having a workout, dredging up memories, expressions, similes and metaphors. And one day out of seven, I do have a satisfactory few hours. My Texan's very patient and I now understand why boatloads of thanks go out to family members and their dogs in the section thanks to where the author extends his or her appreciation to all those who made the work possible who stuck around while it was in progress my gentleman feeds me brings me water and snacks he answers all the landline phone calls that come in not that I get many of those because my children usually go directly to my cell phone which is right beside me on the desk and I always pick that up Well, I'm finished for another week. Where does the time go? We're planning our route back to Texas already, and the last four months have simply flown by. I believe I'm going to be able to say I've achieved what I set out to do. I'm so grateful for this time to write. It has been perfect. We're off to Fort Myers this weekend to pick up a few supplies to leave for the owners and their dogs, and I'm going to be running around the house like a mad thing, getting it in ship shape for their return. The dogs need grooming, floors sweeping and mopping, flower beds weeding, and all the rain we've had, the garden looks simply luscious. I hope you enjoyed hearing two of my children talking about their careers, and I want to say thank you for listening to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny, and I'll be back same time, same place next Friday. Without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief, the hardworking staff at Toginet Radio, my producer, Sabrina, my guests this week, siblings Malia and Ian McNenny, and you, my faithful listeners, especially. Ashley, Hannah, Joel, Anne, Rosemary, Kathleen, Esme, Millicent, Margaret, Jacob, Walter, Jane, Olivia, Tina, and oodles of others who are part of my growing audience. Stay tuned all the time to Tokenet and catch lots of great shows to help you through your day. Take care and be safe. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Doop, 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 doodle. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who were willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.